Hey, everybody. Welcome. It's Fernie, your resident psychic medium and spiritual teacher. And you are listening to Fernie Unfiltered, where we dive into topics that enlighten, inform, and entertain the soul. <clears throat> Today, I want to share an article with you guys. I wrote an article a f- couple of weeks ago. I want to say it was about two or three weeks ago. Actually, I wrote it several weeks ago, but I just posted it or uploaded it to... Um, to medium.com where I usually post most of my articles. So this one is an intriguing one because it deals with the story of Jesus and or Christ, um, who I know as Yeshua, um, for many people who don't realize who who Jesus actually was. And most people just know of the Jesus that they hear about in the Bible and in the biblical stories and Christian stories and, and so forth. But I have been exploring the story of Christ um, for many years. I've actually been questioning the entire story since I was a child, only because there were so many intriguing and um, just extraordinary aspects to the story that for me didn't always add up or didn't really fit like my idea of reality. So for me, it was was just an interesting um, story to start with. And then when you start to go into what it's supposed to mean, um, especially for those of us who were raised Christian or who were raised Catholic in my instance, um, it, it causes you to just wonder like what some of the, some of the pieces didn't always make sense. And I wondered like what actually happened and, and who knows what actually happened because the, the story goes back to what to you know thousand years two thousand years so it's it's been a long time that this has been known in an actual um reality uh, situation so i think the first the first few stories about jesus or the first material that was written down or put down on paper i think uh technically wasn't until a few hundred years after the fact um or way after he was you know alive and no longer on this earth. But there are people and organizations, I, 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 organizations is not a good word. I want to call them, um, there were groups of people, communities that supposedly followed the true teachings of the individual we knew as Yeshua. And uh, they put out they they had many, many texts that spoke of the teachings, and they kind of didn't really go into the birth or the crucifixion. They predominantly focused on the teachings, and they spoke of Yeshua as a man, not as this uh, eternal being or as this godly being. They just spoke about Yeshua as if he was you know one of us, and he had gone through a lot in his life, and he had gone through a lot of transformations. <clears throat> and he found himself and he tried to share all that he had learned and all that he had known with the rest of us. And um, that's when it gets a little sketchy because, you know, everybody is going to hear what they want to hear when they're speaking to someone who is in the know, right? I mean, I know there are times when I'm speaking to my clients or I'm talking to people and I'm sharing an insight or I'm sharing something that I've learned over many years and they completely misinterpret or they completely miss the perspective or the point uh, that I'm making with my um, advice or my counsel or my um, oh, my specific uh, insight. So they miss it because they don't 
properly grasp some of the aspects. Maybe that's my fault because I don't always express things perfectly. Maybe it's, you know, because they just don't have the background or the experience to understand it. Either way, things get misinterpreted. And this is something that is part of human nature. I mean, if you go back to when we first started keeping written records, that wasn't that it wasn't that long ago. I mean, there are cultures around the world that did keep written records a lot. Um, and there, those cultures are a lot of, a lot older, but for the majority of the texts and the material where, um, it is based in the stories and the time frame of the Christ did one there, there aren't as many written records. People didn't really write on paper as much, you know, not everyone could afford paper. Not everyone knew how to write. Not everyone knew how to read. Um, some people didn't understand the concept of language. They were used to telling stories. And I think that's something that has been part of our culture since the beginning of time. We always told stories because it were, it was the way of telling a story that would allow us to learn from each other, that would allow us to grow and to evolve as um, human beings. And, when we started to keep written records, that changed everything because it essentially standardized the storytelling process. And um, so there was less ability or less opportunity to misinterpret or to misunderstand what was said because it was it was you know put down on paper. But then that brings in the other aspect of it where we think about people who like to change the narrative, people who like to change history, who people who like to write history um, in their own benefit or to their own benefit and in, to the detriment of other people. So you can kind of control the narrative and, you know, fast forward, you know, a millennia, people aren't always going to realize that some of what was put down may not have been accurate. It may not have been correct. Um, and I've always wondered that about the, the stories of the Bible and the information that we find in those texts, because how can we be sure that the person who wrote this down didn't have a motivation that they were trying to achieve, didn't have a perspective that they were being um, affected by bias, their own personal bias was part of the storytelling process. And I know plenty of people who I will say one thing to when they run off and they will change that narrative, they'll change the story, and it comes across in a completely different way than how it was originally said. So I think storytelling is important because it helps us to share, but you can't always rely on storytelling because it really is going to come down to, is this really accurate to what actually occurred at that time or has this been changed? Has someone added their own flair to it? So what I, what I believe is that when it comes to information, when it comes to details and storytelling, um, even though I don't always believe everything I read, um, I kind of gauge it by the way I feel, um, because when you listen to something, especially when you li listen to something that is based within a a place within you, deep within you, or within your soul, there's almost like a ringing that happens where you hear something and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, "Oh my god!" Like, I feel this truth. It's not just I hear this and it sounds true to me. It's I feel this truth, and I think that that is something that I've gotten very um, used to feeling. And inevitably, when I feel that, there is evidence or information that comes out after the fact that validates or supports the story. So 
I always try to not just listen to what is being said to me. I try to feel what I feel around it because sometimes feeling something and kind of connecting with the energy of it will give you a lot of, a lot of uh, insight into whether this is something that is believable or something that is possible or something that isn't. Um, so I've always questioned the story about Jesus and the story of who Jesus actually was and what was happening at that time. And, and I think that what has been shared for the most part is extraordinary, um, but it doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel real to me. And it never has. It feels like there's a lot of missing pieces. And then there feel, it feels like there's a lot of stuff that's kind of made up because when someone is experiencing something, they don't experience that moment in great detail. And I think when you, when you watch or when you read the story of Jesus as told by the apostles and the biblical texts, there's so many places where there should be gaps or there should be pieces missing because people have, you know, memories that are not perfect because people aren't there watching every single second of some situation. Um, and knowing that to try to remember every single second of an entire experience years later, you know, as shared in text way past the time that it happened, it's less reliable in my opinion. And, uh, these were still human beings, you know, these were still human beings. I don't think there's anything that states that the apostles had photographic memory or they had perfect memory or what was said was perfect. Not only that, but they sometimes contradict each other or they sometimes, um, say things that don't really line up with each other. So the, there was a group that was around during the time of Christ who were known as the Gnostics and they had different beliefs or different ideas about Christ. And they saw Christ or they saw Yeshua as this great teacher who had so much knowledge and had researched and studied and achieved a place of understanding with our relationship to the universe or to the divine. And he shared this with his followers. And so the, uh, the, Gnostics were a group of people who were more focused on the teachings and less on the story about Christ. They were like, oh, you know, yeah, you're great. You're this, you're that, whatever. Let's focus on your teachings. Your teachings were more important, which honestly, to be quite honest, I think that's actually, that really is the way it should be. It should be the teachings because we know many, many great people in history who were not perfect, who made mistakes. I know I've made plenty of mistakes, but, uh, I would rather people pay attention to the teachings and I try to live by example of those teachings instead of me just being written about and me being, um, me being, uh, turned into this like figure or this individual that is supposed to be worshiped. I'd rather people pay attention to my teachings. I don't want to be worshiped. I would rather they listen to what I'm saying and then use that to their, to their, um, to their benefit. So I, have questioned the story of Christ from a long time. And the Gnostics wrote many a text down and they kind of didn't really get around to making it into the history books. Um, but their material was found a long time ago. Um, I think this was in the forties or the fifties. Don't remember which, which period, which, uh, decade, but their information was found in jars in clay jars in the desert. And, uh, there were, uh, lots of written scrolls that had a lot of information that focused on the teachings of Christ to told stories about different things that we don't really hear very often in books such as the um, Bible. 
And uh, we see in the films that that the Bible, that that films are based in biblical text. But it's very intriguing. And if you ever watch the movie, The Da Vinci Code, I think they actually touch on some of the material that is actually included in the, Mag- the Nag Hammadi text, which is where these uh, scrolls were found. They were found in this territory or area called Nag Hammadi. And uh, they eventually made their way to the public um, decades later, later and uh, were interpreted and whatever was able to be saved or salvaged, they used and they turned into um, material to put into a book, which we, we now call the Nag Hammadi scriptures. It's really intriguing if you read it. Um, and there's a lot there about Yeshua. There's a lot there about Mary Magdalene, um, Jesus's brother as well. So there's a lot about different things that I've never heard about, but it makes more sense than what you would read in the biblical text. And the Nag Hammadi material or the scrolls, I think, were carbon dated to about 40 years after the birth of Christ, which, you know, if you follow along with what the Nag Hammadi talks about, it um, it gives a different spin on what happened with Christ. So this, exploring that and understanding that, that was something that really intrigued me. And I, I, I always want to know what actually happened and what occurred. I, I mean, I wish I could be a fly on the wall for a lot of the things in history, because I think that People tend to embellish and they tend to, you know, I tend to embellish sometimes um, when I'm telling a really great story, but that's just, that's the, that's the nature of humanity. So a few years ago, I began to channel a being known to me as Aja. And as time has gone by, I've become familiar with Aja and Aja is my higher, my highest self or my higher self, or what I would call my soul. Um, and if you believe that we are all part of the divine part of God, there's that energy, that, that beingness. And then if you break it down into a smaller fraction of itself, I would call that the soul, the soul body or the soul, the soul being. And then if you break that into smaller pieces, um, you get the personalities or the spirits, which I am a spirit personality. I'm Fernie and I belong to Aja, which is the soul body. And then I, we belong to God, which is the eternal body. So that's the kind of the, the pattern that I've recognized. And uh, so I began channeling Aja and that higher awareness, that higher knowledge came through me in various ways and forms, mostly through written form. I would just journal it or write it all down or text it to myself sometimes, depending on where I was. Over time, I have received a lot of information from Aja. And one of the things that has recently become very just just blown me away was the story of Yeshua and some of the things about this story that even now as I read it, I don't know if I believe all of it because some of it seems kind of like out there, but um, it sounds human and it sounds real and I can relate to almost every aspect of the story. And not only that, but it it really does cause us to see ourselves, to look within ourselves, to see the divinity within us, to see that we are all part of this eternal being, and we are all we all have access to the potential and the capacity that was with Yeshua. So um, I wrote the story down, and I did it in bits and pieces because it came through over many weeks, over many months, in bits and pieces. Um, and then a few weeks ago, I was. Talking to a friend, I was texting, and he asked an intriguing question. And it 
got me to ask myself something, which then facilitated me connecting through Aja. And then Aja kind of took over and started to, to dictate the story. So I got the story down um, and I was told you need to write this down and put this on written form for everyone else to see. So I spent about four to six hours in one day writing this down, getting it all the pieces down. I even created art around it, which if you're watching the video version of this, um, you'll probably um, understand the uh, story much better. But I'm going to share it with you because I think it it just really changes everything in the way that we would have perceived and thought of the individual that we that would have been known in history as Jesus. Um, but I'll call him Yeshua because I want to stick to the name that was given and the name that I've been um, associating him with. So I'm going to read the article to you guys. And uh, I don't, it's, it's up to you, <laughs> whether you care to believe it or not. It's, it's, I, I'm not here to prove to you either way. It's something that I was given. I'm giving it to you. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious to see what y'all think about the story. Um, but it's really interesting. And I am grateful for Aja for sharing the story with me and for giving me kind of an insight insider's tale or view of what may have actually occurred. I'm not going to say that this is 100% accurate because, I mean, I'm still human and I'm still interpreting through my faculties. And so Aja's trying the very best to connect and to filter that information to me. And even then, it's not going to be accurate. So, But I want to just share with you guys um, the story. I'm going to read it to you right now. Um, so hopefully it doesn't get too monotonous because it is a pretty long article. It's like a 15-minute long read. Um, but I think you all may appreciate it. So I'm going to go ahead and just start reading that right now. So this is a story of one of the most influential beings in all of human history, Yeshua, also known to most of mankind as Jesus. It was told to me through channeling sessions over the last two years by Aja, a higher consciousness known as my soul, and I feel now it is the time to share it. When I first began to connect with Aja regularly, a fountain of questions would surface, and I'd spend hours, days, weeks sorting out the data. While my questions about the nature of reality and our history have been answered, those answers did not come quickly and sometimes took weeks to put together. They eventually came, and I'm so grateful for the chance to share the story to share the resulting story I received about one of the most controversial figures in history. I will discuss aspects of the official story we have all been taught, and the version I will share with you now is based in truth and within the teachings and details Aja has given me. We've been taught about the life and times of Jesus, but his actual name was Yeshua. He was a child born into privilege. His father and family were well-known and respected, as they owned a business that had a working relationship with the community and local provincial governance. Yeshua was a tyrannical child, spoiled and expecting of great things and benefits through his family, and would raise hell when he didn't get what he wanted. It was expected that he would become a part of managing his family business, but as he got older, he struggled immensely. His was not the most stable of minds, and he struggled with depression and a sullen disposition. He was very unhappy, and all of the prominence and financial abundance he was entitled to did not settle his pained mind. He had also begun to exhibit many unique and supernatural abilities, for sensing and healing, 
But he did not understand this intuition, nor was he able to fully control these occurrences. Money, women, and influence did nothing to bring him peace and left him feeling very empty. However, he felt within his heart that there was more to life than this. He ached for truth and deeper meaning, and began to look to the faith of his family and culture for answers. He visited the temples and was given private audience with various religious leaders, rabbis, and ministries. Yeshua was no stranger to controversy and would publicly denounce what he did not agree with. For several years, he studied and evolved his understanding and beliefs around the established teachings of these religious orders, including those of the Pharisees and mystical practices of the Essenes. Though this gave him answers, those teachings did not align with those of his inner being, and he questioned and confronted these beliefs based in the traditions of Moses and Judaism. He felt the establishment had become a system for the government and served their own interests financially and not the needs of the people. Though there were Jewish teachings he affirmed beneficial, in this mind they did Though there were Jewish teachings he affirmed beneficial, in his mind they had been clouded by the will of those in power within the religious tradition over many centuries. Yeshua continued to struggle, and it became increasingly difficult to appease his desires for knowledge and information. The religious orders of the time could offer what, what the religious orders of the time could offer. Oh, Jesus, I'm like having trouble with this part of it. (laughs) Yeshua continued to struggle and it became increasingly difficult to appease his desires for knowledge and information. What the religious orders of the time could offer was limited and his hunger for more grew each day. There was a calling within him to go out to the desert and to seek more from the other faiths and orders in faraway lands. He had learned of several others based in India, and desired to know their teachings. It was agreed with his family that he would leave, delay further his apprenticeship, extend his studies, and journey to these ancient lands for further knowledge and truth. His parents knew of his emotional and mental struggles and had given up on forcing him to take up the family business. They desired only to give him peace as the relationships and emotional burdens on his family and siblings had been immense for years. There were moments when he was settled and at peace and then would work into a frenzy with these emotional impulses of anger and resentment. Perhaps the practices of these other traditions would aid him. Through his family's resources and influence, they arranged to have him travel and experience these orders himself. He studied meditation and the absence of desire with the Buddhist monks in the monasteries of many years, for many years, between the ages of 12 to 30, and also explored the methods of the yogis in India. Through his studies, he believed himself to be a reincarnated energy form of the great teacher Siddhartha Gautama, or the Buddha. He had learned of reincarnation through his studies and felt a strong bond with the master teacher of Buddhism. Yeshua believed his path forward would yield the same pattern. He experimented with many techniques and began to establish the basis of what would later become his teachings. He was known during this period as Isa and found great wisdom in these practices and methods of self-awareness and our connection to all things.
After almost two decades of study, he felt a calling to return to his homeland to teach and provide a path for peace, love, and understanding to those trapped within the structure of ignorance and financial enslavement that had become the basis of his original Jewish faith. He returned back to his hometown and began to share what he had learned. The tales of his past and radical nature were infamous, and he was not immediately welcomed amongst his own people. But he had not returned to his home as, a, as the sullen, chaotic persona he had once been. His own family, parents, and siblings, as well as the people of his town, did not even recognize him. Something had changed. He was different. He was kind, and there was a light of compassion about him. He found peace in practices of prayer and meditation, and his words sprung forth with a form that were based in love and gentleness, not with arrogance or his usual flippant nature. Though he still exhibited these behaviors, the basis of his perspective was one of love, togetherness, and unity. There were still times Yeshua would struggle and revert in nature due in part to the triggers brought on by his, fam- by his experiences with his family and townspeople, but he continued to work through his personal struggles to embrace his rebirth as a more pure, motivated, and insightful version of his former self. He did so through the support and aid of his friend and distant cousin John, also a healer and sensitive who regularly held cleansing ceremonies and water for those seeking salvation from their lives' mistakes. To begin again and move forward in new form was the basis of these ceremonies, and it helped the struggling Yeshua in moments of emotional turmoil. His relationship with John was one based in camaraderie, and though they had very different ideas, their intent was the same. His teachings were revolutionary and provided safety from the brutality and abuse of the governance. They offered solutions and strategies that had not been received through their Jewish faith. And his perspective on oneness and divergence from supporting the existing religious orders and structures was refreshing. Hearing his words affected those who received them with a resonance for truth. His behavior was embodied in those teachings and the absence of hypocrisy was obvious in all that he taught. His initial gatherings were small and intimate. There were those who truly appreciated his perspective, and it supported their wishes to no longer feel enslaved by the religious orders and taxation of government. There was no middleman between them and their inheritance of well-being, love, and unity with God. Over many years, his following grew, and though it provided a threat to the establishment, he was allowed to continue due in part to the influence and standing of his family and their business. Rumors began to emerge within the community, and many considered him a supernatural being and savior to their cause. He would exhibit psychic and healing ability occasionally, in some instances curing or reversing mental and physical illness, and seemed to grasp seemed to grasp control over such occurrences. This validated the gossip further, and people believed that he had come to liberate them from their suffering, new form of bondage, and financial enslavements. This was a blow to the establishments as they had maintained an authority over the people for generations. Yeshua had become a radical threat, and this only served the expansion of his teachings further. They were revolutionary and offered a way out for many. Many of his followers, the common working person, could not grasp 
the enormity of his words. But there were some who showed promise and could realize the potential of his teachings. He had an inner circle of people made up of other young scholars and businessmen of influence who felt a connection to these radical philosophical concepts. They had begun to grow tired of the status quo as well and desired a much-needed change to their society. They would gather in small groups and Yeshua would discuss his ideas and concepts with them. This would often lead to heated debates and arguments at great lengths. Among these disciples was a young woman named Mary Magdalene, who was also from an established family. She related very much to Yeshua's life and had also suffered and experienced many of the things he had before his travels to the other lands. Her family considered her unstable of mind as well as due to her radical thinking. She had begun she had been engaged to be wed at the behest of her own family, but through the teachings and perspective Yeshua offered, she denounced these arrangements and grew more in love with her mentor. This in turn evolved into a relationship that had no official designation, and this troubled several of Yeshua's followers. A woman unwed and sharing the bed of a man previously known to have been a philanderer was not a welcomed association. She was disowned by her own family and eventually would marry Yeshua. He shared the depths of his travels, experiences, and ideological concepts with her, and they would engage regularly in working through the understanding of many of these ideas so to pass them on to his growing following. Yeshua's other disciples, mostly males of status, did not appreciate this methodology and relationship. How could a woman know more than they did in matters of philosophy? But her life had prepared her, and she was more aware of Yeshua's concepts because of her own direct experiences in applying them through the strategies in his teachings than most. Yeshua also had another close follower, family member, and disciple named Judah. He would argue passionately with him and would quite often intentionally try to dismantle and deconstruct the concepts and teachings of his brother. They had grown up together, and Judah had not really supported his brother's awful behavior in his youth. Now, as a traveled and grounded man, he recognized the value in his brother's teachings, but would still recognize the arrogance in his ways, even now. Though their life had been one of privilege at the support of their family's business, he identified with Yeshua's need for change and liberation of the status quo. Judah also had established relationships with many of the leaders of their provincial government, so he had a clearer grasp of the nuances that came with what his brother was attempting to do. There was much respect between the two, but he was also very critical of Yeshua's approach and perspective. Judah was also unique in that he felt a preference for the company and romantic attention of men, so he was no stranger to feeling like an outsider and outcast in society. This left him sympathetic and open-minded to his brother's unique way of thinking. In time, the temples became places of business in cooperation with the government through stimulus programs meant to increase church profits and taxation opportunities on merchants and worshippers. Yeshua saw this action as corrupt, immoral, and an obvious abuse of power and authority. In one instance, he visited the temples and raised hell, arguing, fighting, and creating havoc and chaos amongst the marketplace. This in conjunction with his hand of 
This in conjunction with his handling of, re- of his relationship with Mary began to fuel a seed of doubt within the local population that had been supportive since his return. Despite the public's growing doubt, Yeshua did not stop promoting his truth and perspective. This created a unique and challenging position for the governor of his providence, Pontius Pilate. Up to this point, Pilate had been avoiding a direct confrontation with the influential Yeshua and his family's associations within the community. Pilate spoke with Yeshua's brother, Judah, as a representative of the family and began to threaten their business dealings if Yeshua did not end his directed attacks on the government's policies and arrangements with church leaders. These programs were meant to increase opportunities for the business communities while also utilizing the temple for growth with worship. If Yeshua did not yield in his actions and approach, then it would be his followers who would pay the price for their ignorance of the laws. He requested that Yeshua leave immediately and return to the God-forsaken lands of India or else. In response to Pilate's ultimatum and for the well-being of his brother, Judah attempted to discuss the matter and legal complexities with Yeshua. This did not fare well with Yeshua as he made it clear he would not yield but instead hold true to his words and teachings. He added that if Judah could not support his work and obvious exposition of corruption, then he would not fare well himself. It was not long after his discussion when Yeshua's cousin John was arrested and beheaded for a wide array of charges. Other followers of lesser influence had also been arrested and killed as a gesture meant to force force Yeshua's hand by Pilate and his associates. Judah and his brother spoke at length and he consoled him, as these deaths had severely affected Yeshua, leaving him confused and unable to find meaning with the unfolding events. His work was based in peace, love, and compassion. It was never his intent to cause others, especially his followers, harm or death. This also began to shift the public's opinion of Yeshua. This confirmed their concerns and fears that he had not changed and was still the self-involved, egotistical man of his past who cared for no one but himself and had no sense of responsibility for those who followed him. Despite the fact that there had been many miraculous synchronicities with his arrival, including healings and personal transformations, there were growing concerns about the protection of his followers. For his own to die in the following of their teach of his teachings meant that he would not be able to save them from pain and suffering. This was a complete affront to their former belief that he was supernatural and above law and effect of the current powers. With growing public support for his imprisonment, and death, along with the defecting of several of his followers, it was becoming increasingly necessary for Yeshua to submit to Pilate's request. The pressure continued to mount, and Yeshua decided to consider request the request at Judah's urging. After spending some time in meditation and prayer out in the desert, he felt that he should continue his plight and trust that his work was supported by God in all that he did. His efforts must continue, and God would provide a way when one did not seem apparent. He would not leave and relayed his decision to his brother. He told him that he knew this would be a difficult position for him, his family, and his followers, but it was necessary to honor his work and continue his teachings. He asked Judah to deliver this clearly to Pontius Pilate, though he'd expect him to try to find a way of working out an arrangement. 
Yeshua knew his brother well and anticipated Judah using his own methods of handling his delicate matter, this delicate matter, despite his objections against it, as had, de- as had been done so in the past. Judah was given an audience with the governor and reported back what his brother had decided. It was clear to Judah that Pilate would pursue swift and deadly action against his brother. When the method of his retribution was made obvious, he pleaded for a compromise. After all, Pilate still did not desire a direct backlash from his family and their dealings. So it was agreed that Yeshua would be treated as a criminal and brought to death in the eyes of the public. But he would not actually be killed, but instead be transported after his apparent death to India. It would be for Judah to make arrangements and to take responsibility for his brother afterwards. This would serve as a clear message from the government that dissent and any breaking of the laws would not be tolerated, so that future uprising could be discouraged. Yeshua was imprisoned, tortured, and brought to death in an apparent public crucifixion in front of his many followers. As he hung upon the cross, a great anger, resentment, and rage arose within him. He yelled out in confusion and complete shock of what had transpired. In his mind, God had betrayed him. A way had not been made, and his teachings would not continue. When it was clear he had lost consciousness upon the cross, he was brought down and held in his family's tomb. There he rested and was cared for by his wife Mary until he was able to travel. Judah then went about to spread the word, informed his followers and disciples that it was not safe for them to remain. They were to dissolve and spread Yeshua's teachings throughout the territories. They did not understand this betrayal to his own brother, but but heeded his warnings and continued their teacher's legacy as they saw fit. When Yeshua awoke, the truth of what had transpired was made clear, and he had no choice but to accept what was. His following had been dispersed, left to believe he had died upon the cross, and now there was no work left to be done in his homeland. He came to understand that a way, in fact, had been made. His journey was not over, and his work would continue through his legacy with the disciples, followers, and through his own teachings elsewhere. One of his followers bore witness to his departure and became confused as it appeared he was very much alive and had not died. But Yeshua discouraged them from coming closer to know the truth and validated their confusion with the idea he had been granted another opportunity to be reborn and to continue his work elsewhere. He then left for the territories of India as he did not wish to jeopardize Judah's agreement for the benefit of their family and remaining followers in hiding. Yeshua lived a long life and continued his ministries in Kashmir and surrounding regions. He was known as a wise sage of wealth and prominence from a foreign land. The name he was known as in these regions was Yusasaf. Yuzazaf, <laughs> Y-U-Z-A-S-U-F, or Yuzazaf. This great sage is currently buried in a sacred temple dedicated to his teachings and story in Srinagar of Kashmir, India. There is evidence of the story and all that it encompasses. In the words of Yeshua, whoever searches must continue to search until they find. When they find, they will be disturbed, and being disturbed, they will marvel and will reign over all. I make no claim that this this 
is I make no claim that this is how the history of Yeshua unfolded, but it is the story I was given by Aja. I can say that I am more inspired by this one than by the one I was force-fed as a child growing up in the Catholic faith. Knowing this truth and authentically it, that authentically reflects our own human condition and struggles along the spiritual path is one I believe our civilization in, is in desperate need of, especially now. While there are many theories and stories out there, if you're interested in exploring this potential historical account, the Nag Hammadi is riddled with supporting evidence and is a great place to start. This narrative may bring together many aspects that suddenly make more sense than ever before. When you revisit existing Gospels, and I invite you to seek the truth, explore other possibilities, and keep searching to expand the basis of your faith. The results will be a much deeper and authentic faith rooted in truth and enlightenment. So this is the article that I wrote and that I actually shared on medium.com. And um, it was pretty interesting because when I put this out there, there were quite a few mixed reactions, but for the most part, a lot of people identified and connected with the story. And it was intriguing to say the least. Even I was the person writing it down on paper. Um, it was pretty, it was really intriguing and I kind of didn't know what to make of it at first. Um, so I was called to write the story and it took me, like I said, several, uh, days, weeks, et cetera, to kind of piece it all together. But when I actually sat down to go back over and complete the process of writing, um, I started on the, it, it was interesting because I started to, to put it all down, um, on the, on an, on actually an Easter, believe it or not, I actually started to share and put it all down on Easter. So, um, I began writing and preparing it and getting it ready to put out there. And then fast forward several weeks on my birthday, May 6th, which just so happened to be that night. And then the following morning, there was a full moon. It was a flower moon or the blossom moon or something like that. Um, I felt that day I actually uploaded and shared it, which was funny because there was no intention for me to share it that day. I actually been trying to share it like several days and I just could not break myself, bring myself down to sit down and rewrite it or read it, um, to upload it. So it was a bit, um, it was a bit, uh, I was hesitant, but I finally sat my butt down in the middle of the night and I just started finishing it up and uploading the pictures. And, um, then I posted it and it was on my birthday, May 6th. Um, and that evening was a full moon. So it was an interesting, uh, time frame. And I actually talked about this in my last podcast with Stephen Kahn, who's a Vedic, Vedic astrologer. And we talked about the astrology of when I felt the need to write it because on Easter, when I was outside, I had gone outside to kind of make some barbecue. I was making, um, my partner some, uh, a steak. And, uh, I looked into the sky and it was just so gorgeous. It was a, it was a clear night and I could see the stars and I could see Venus kind of popping out over the, um, over the, uh, the horizon. And I was like, wow, like that's gorgeous. It's so bright and beautiful. And I was like, there's, I feel like there's a story about Venus, but I, I didn't remember the story, but I went ahead and got my, um, telescope, pulled it out, you know, looked at it through the telescope, took pictures, posted it online the, the evening of Easter. Um, and then I began to write down everything that I was guided to write down. I'd already created the art, but then I started to write down the actual story as I had been told. And, um, that's when I started that process. So 
when I looked up the story of Venus, there was something about it being that it was considered the morning star. And there's there's stories that the morning star was Satan or the devil. There are other stories that say, no, Jesus was the morning star or he was the star. Um, and so there's a lot of weird, conflicting stories there. And when I asked Aja, Aja said that Jesus was both that a lot of people have separated Jesus from his hum, hum, human humanity or, or humility because in order to create the concept of this all perfect being or all perfect you know bigger version of a human or god form they kind of had to separate that doubting part of Jesus so what they did was they created a myth of this cre- cre- uh, person they call Satan or the devil. And so whenever you have stories where Jesus is dealing with Satan or he's dealing with this devil figure, he's actually dealing with himself. He's actually struggling within. He's dealing with his inner demons and he's trying to come to peace with himself, but he's also fighting himself at the same time. And so what they did was they created the evil version of this person, person, persona called Jesus or Yeshua. And then there's the idealistic version of Yeshua, which we know as Jesus today in the Catholic and the Christian faith. But it's the same person. But they split it up back in the day because they didn't want people to know that we were just like Yeshua and that Yeshua was just like us. So there's a lot of confusion around that. And I... I know that this is probably going to get me blasted <laughs> just by talking about this and even sharing the story. I'm sure a lot of diehard Christians who have followed everything to the letter, except their behavior and their ability to love unconditionally and their ability to be compassionate and their ability to lead by example. I'm sure those people are going to send me hate mail or messages of hatred or anger or go off on me because they aren't Christian. They think they are. They call themselves that. They're kind of, you know, they, they've they basically regurgitated what they've been told, what they've sometimes read, because some of them haven't read the entire story of the Bible or the book, um, nor do they understand where it came from. A lot of people don't realize that the biblical texts that we know didn't actually exist till, you know, 100, 200, 300 years after Jesus was no longer here. And so the stories of the, the apostles and all that had been already recycled over and over again. They were all verbal stories. They were never written down during the time of Christ. And then over time, someone written, wrote them down and there had been texts and scrolls that had been um, you know, handed around and, and passed around that carried these ideas and these stories from the different disciples. But when they put the Bible together, it wasn't, you know, Jesus didn't sit down and say, hey, everybody, come around me, come come, come to Jesus. You know, this book right here I have, this is the Old Testament. This is the big book. This is the book that's going to be added on to the stuff I'm about to tell you. So pay attention because this is the first part of everything that I'm teaching you. When that's actually not what actually happened, that's the exact opposite of what happened because he went around and actually said to everyone, I've been to church, I've talked to the rabbis, I've read all this stuff, and it's BS. <laughs> it's complete BS. There's some good stuff in it, but quite honestly, this is not something that I really uh, I follow. This is not something that I really believe in or put a lot of stock in, and there's more to it, to it than that. Um, and he was, very out of, he was very outspoken. I mean, you can go back and read the Bible because he speaks against it in the Bible. So he, he talks about this. Um, and so, of course, 
he speaks about how people were kind of they became enslaved by these old stories and these old this old structure of religion that is the old testament these old, uh, old texts from a different religion and not part of christianity to begin with and uh so he you know he the, there was a place where it said you know this has a place in our society some of this is pretty good but some of this is just it's not it's not pertinent to our situation it doesn't really reflect us and where we are in our time now so this isn't going to work and this is what i've learned this is what i understand you can do exactly what i can do you can you can be exactly what i am and so here's how to do it and he tried to tell everybody how to do it and then fast forward a few hundred years and they wrote a book they put together they got all the, the church leaders and all the different organizations around town that had power and influence they said hey we need to come together uh, constantine emperor constantine after he almost died and converted to christianity he said let's come together and let's put together one resource because i want everybody to have the same following i want everyone to have the same resource i want it all standardized i don't want any more fighting i don't want any more people arguing and killing each other over whether they are pagans or whether they are Christian. So I, we need all to come together. And I think that Christianity would be the way to lead us through all of this. So created this standardized text um, after many, many uh, days, weeks, years of coming together with these, bringing these uh, these leaders together to kind of agree on what's going to be in the book. And there was a lot of stuff that didn't make it. Um, and when the Gnostics raised their voices and said, this is unacceptable. This does not line up with the teachings of Yeshua. This goes against some of his teachings. They banned them from being a part of the the, the, organi- the, the coming together, and they weren't allowed to be part of it. Not only that, but they made their teachings uh, against the law. And so that's when the Gnostics had to kind of spread out and go all over the place because they no longer um, could be part of the community. And if they did decide to teach what they were teaching, they would be killed. So they left, and they, that's where they hid their school scrolls in the desert. Um, and so a bunch of the old material that Yeshua spoke against was included in the biblical text that we now today know as the Bible. And it depends on which Bible you're talking about, because there's like over 40 or 50 versions of them. And they all have subtle differences and subtle changes. Some of them have big changes, so they don't even line up with each other. So, I mean, even to this day, we've got all these different versions of the same material, but it's been altered and docked, docked dirt by people who felt it was in the best interests of their followers to line it up with their own perspective or bias. So we've got all these different variations of the teachings and these this book, this source material, which isn't really in its own form consistent. It's not consistent with what was originally taught by Yeshua. Um, and so it's kind of hypocritical to include something he didn't really agree with, the Old Testament, and then throw that in and say, okay, we're going to, we know we don't have enough, <laughs> we don't have enough about Yeshua. So we're going to put some filler in and they put in the new Testament, the old Testament in with the new Testament. Um, because that's, that's what, how they saw that they would be able to create that source and that standardized material. Um, but it really is up to you. And, um, what you believe or what you want to believe. I had a diehard uh, Christian uh, friend of mine who she was always quoting the Bible. And I asked her once, I said, where did the Bible come from? And she said, well, it came from God. You know, Jesus came, gave us the Bible. And I said, no. I said, where did the actual book, the, the written book, the book you open that you read the words, who wrote those words? Where did this book come from? You know, where did this start? And she had no answer for me. And I'm like, okay. And she had attended Bible study. I mean, I'm like, how can you, how can you be part of what would be considered Bible study and, and researching and studying the Bible when you 
don't know where it's come from or how it came into being. Um, I think that's important. I think it's important to know where something came from and how it came into being, whether we agree with the way that happened or not. I mean, it's, it's history. And so um, I think it's important that we educate ourselves and understand a lot of the things that we aren't taught. Uh, because I think many times churches are businesses. They are going to run their services as businesses because they have to make money so that they can survive. Not only that, but they are, they were responsible for communities um, for many, many years. So, and they still are, they're still responsible for a lot of communities. So they have to run as a business. They have to make money and they have to make sure that everything stays on brand. And it's, it's like branding one-on-one these days. I mean, when you have a business and you're putting stuff out there, you need to stay consistent with the brand. And that's, this is what they tried to do. They created a brand and they used it to have influence and to have power. And at some point there was a lot of power around this. I mean, there were a lot of uh, people who became, you know, uh, indoctrinated in the the Catholic and the in the Christian faith, and they became members and supporting members at that. And uh, the people who they supported became powerful, became influential, had say. To this day, we have people in our communities and people in our governments, people in our culture and country who are very powerful because they are associated with a particular faith or they come from a mindset that is based in a particular faith. And I don't think that that's fair because when it comes down to it, you can believe something, but you're still a human being at the end of the day. You know, you were born, you were not born with the Bible or anything else in your hands. You were born naked and everything that you are given, everything that you receive is, is through your experiences with others. So, but you are born naked. There's nothing else to you, but that. So there is something within us that is engaged when we experience something. When I see something very violent or gory violence or just really, really, really awful violence and nastiness from people, it hurts. It actually hurts inside for me to witness that and to see that, which is why I don't watch a lot of horror movies or, or flicks today, because it hurts to to experience that. It, it does not feel natural to me. Some people, they don't care. They've been conditioned that it's nothing to them. I, I I've never been okay with watching or experiencing those things. So it's really hard for me to um, interact in that way with with those kinds of experiences. Um, watching someone be abusive and cruel to another, same thing. And I think there have been studies and even shows done where they witness kids witnessing things and they, they see how the child reacts or what the child does. And there's a natural reaction that is there at the very early age until they get old enough and they start to become conditioned. And that's when the trauma sets in. That's when the 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 our human bullshit kicks in and we do what we're taught. Um, it's like racism. I think racism is taught. Racism is not a natural thing for us. Yes, someone may look different or be different than us, but usually what's natural for us is intrigue, being intrigued by someone's appearance because they are different, curiosity because they are different, not, oh my God, they're they're black or oh my God, they're different or oh my God, this or that, let me run away. No, it's usually intrigue, which is why so many natives died when the conquistadors came over and occupied the lands and never left because they were intrigued and they saw this as, wow, very unique. And just, it was a natural, uh, a natural curiosity there versus the... Um, which is why, in, you know, the settlers were fed sometimes by uh, natives that came and brought them food because they were starving. Because the natural tendency for humanity is to be human. And I think that we know better. Internally, we know better. We feel it. 
But if we don't listen to that, if we don't honor that natural tendency for love, the natural tendency for compassion, the natural tendency for connection and togetherness, then we become the devil. We become the Satan. We become the demons of our own world and of our own life. And we turn our world into the hell that we fear the most. So you shouldn't worry about a hell or an aftermath because you were not a great human being. Um, you shouldn't worry about that after you're dead. You should worry about that while you're alive. Because if one person acts in a way that goes against the very nature of our divine being, of the beingness that we were taught to connect with, that we were taught to know through great masters like Yeshua, then that knowing, that that beingness um, will elevate us, will help us to raise the level and the vibration of our world. But if we connect with the, the parts of us that are not natural, then we will turn this place into a raging hell. And I think what we have experienced in the last few years is a perfect example of this. So I wish you all lots of love, lots of positivity, um, and uh, I hope you get something from this. And I look forward to our next time together, all right? Till then, bye-bye.